Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us today for what is sure to be an interesting conversation. My name is Colleen Horanchek, and I'm a policy analyst with the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom. Our work is centered around the idea that one size doesn't fit all when it comes to education, especially in a nation that's diverse as ours. While assigning kids to schools based on where they lived may have been made sense in the 1800s when they relied on the horse and buggy and the Pony Express, there's really no justification for it anymore. And that's why our work around school choice or letting funding follow students instead of making students follow the funding is so important. When we fund students, we can help ensure that each child receives the education that works for them. But there's another group of people that educational options are important for, and that's teachers. We don't think about that as often, but one size doesn't fit all for teachers either. And that's why I'm thrilled to be joined today by three former public school teachers who have charted a new course for themselves in other educational environments. Throughout today's discussion, you can submit questions via the webpage, Facebook or YouTube, and on Twitter using the hashtag CatoCEF. I'm gonna let the panelists introduce themselves, starting with Dr. Angela Kennedy. Kennedy. I am a former public school teacher. I worked in various areas in the, within the public school. I was a primary teacher. I was an instructional coach, reading coach. My last position was as an academic coach, where I worked mostly with um, teachers and helping to model uh, the uh, engaging instruction for them. Um, I was in the public school system for 13 years in those positions and I transitioned into private um, and opening um, my own school, Deeper Root Academy, and we've been open for the last eight years. This has been a adventure to say the least, but certainly something worthwhile and you'll hear more about that during our conversation today. And next let's go to Tom. Uh, thank you. I'm Tom Bogle, also a former uh, public school educator, taught high school, uh, mostly in the business and career and technical education area. Um, I, I've been in education for about 15 years now and spent about eight of those years working in, in public education system. Um, it was several years ago I was able to to step away and explore what different alternatives were out there for me as an education professional outside of the realm of the, the typical classroom. And I've done a number of different things since then. We'll talk about some of those throughout our discussion today. Uh, and I am just so excited for the prospects of what is out there, what's coming, what's yet to be designed and delivered. Um, we really are on the cusp of what I think is a fantastic transition in the world of education and the opportunities that we provide both for the kids and for the educators. And then we have Kimberly Brown. Awesome. Thank you, Colleen. Yes. Hi, everyone. It's so great to be here with you. Um, as she mentioned, I'm also a former public school teacher. I was a high school English teacher. I taught in the Bronx in New York City. I taught in Richmond, Virginia, and now I'm in Boston, Massachusetts. And my other background includes working at educational nonprofits. I did some curriculum design and development. Um, and now I'm happy to be working at KiPod Learning, which is an in-person learning center for students who are enrolled in online school or homeschooled. Um, and they come in and I help them with uh, tutoring and social emotional development and a lot of other things that I'm sure you'll hear more about as we go along. So super excited that there are other opportunities out there for other educators um, and to discuss that more with you today. That's great. So now we have a sense of you know, where you are right now and a little bit of your story. But one thing people are often curious about is what prompted you to leave public education? So maybe we'll go in reverse order and uh, put you back up, Kim, right away. Yeah, sure. So I, you know, did all of my undergrad and, and grad school wanting to be a high school English teacher, and I loved being in the classroom. I loved working with the students. I loved developing those relationships with them. Um, but the, you know, story that a lot of people have experienced, I just got burnt out very quickly, um, and so. 
I, you know, having wanted to be a teacher for so long, that was kind of the only option that I knew as a professional in education, other than potentially being on an administrative track. And I really wanted to be in the classroom. So I knew that wasn't really the option that I wanted to pursue. Um, and so it took me a really long time to find something that wasn't a traditional teaching job. Um, and I happened across this, this summer program that KaiPod was doing. Um, and it was in the classroom with students still being able to build those relationships with small groups. Um, but it didn't have a lot of uh, those other things that teachers always have to do that really burn them out really quickly, um, which is all of the grading outside of school and uh, having 200 students that you're working with. Um, at KaiPod, we have a 10 to 1 student teacher ratio as our, as our largest ratio. Um, so you really get to know the students, you get to know their families, and really get to know them in a more holistic sense, which was, you know, as a teacher, what you really want to do and really want to make an impact on the whole student. Um, but it just was really disheartening when I was a classroom teacher to not feel like that was possible and to feel like I was sacrificing um, a lot of myself and a lot of potential for my future, you know, of, of my family and uh, having the capacity to continue to, to give in a school setting um, to that amount. So the, the story of getting burnt out was, was very real. Um, and also the story of not knowing that there were a lot of other options uh, from leaving the, the classroom. That's great. And that definitely echoes what I've heard from other teachers. Is that similar, Tom, at all to what you experienced? So there was definitely a, a little bit of a burnout factor there, but the passion was still alive for education. For me, it was a little bit different in that um, what I found was that what I was trying to teach the students in my classes was actually running into conflict with the underlying kind of uh, hidden curriculum of the institution in which I was teaching. So I taught entrepreneurship. That was like my bread and butter course. I loved that class. The kids loved that class. Um, and that's where my passion really was coming from the, the world of economics as well. Um, but I found that as I would try to make this class as real and authentic um, as possible for the students in there, they would approach it with this mentality of, yeah, but it's just another school project. And it didn't matter what I tried, if I could bring in, you know, real entrepreneurs, people who are doing this for a living, I could bring in speakers from the venture capital world to show them, hey, this is real stuff, guys. This is what people actually do for, for a living. It didn't matter. They were approaching it with this idea of this is just another school project. And I found that if I really wanted to be successful in teaching kids the principles of entrepreneurship, then I had to take that instruction and do it outside of that classroom model. And I, so I started just kind of offering uh, individual homeschool and like homeschool co-op courses uh, that I did after my school hours. Um, and, and that was like my first taste of, hey, maybe there's something out there where I could do this a little bit differently. I could do this in a different environment uh, that when I finally did step away from teaching my class full time. Um, it, it was a hard thing to do to step away, but I knew it absolutely was not only the best thing that I could do for myself as a professional, but it was the best thing that I could do for the kids who were going to be my future students is to give them an opportunity to learn the actual lessons I was trying to teach uh, without kind of the subtext of this underlying, you know, meta curriculum of the design of the institution in which you're learning. Well, let's take that out of the equation. Let's learn the concepts, let's learn, learn the principles uh, and, and approach things that way. Uh, I have kind of been in a, a number of different learning environments since then. And I, you know, the one that I've, I've landed on, I've been with uh, Prenda, Prenda Microschools since 2019. And am I still teaching the entrepreneurship course that I originally wanted to? No, because our learning model is a little bit different than that. But am I seeing the kids, even without this direct instruction of principles of entrepreneurship, they have an opportunity to learn those principles, uh, even, if the, even though they're not being taught them directly. 
So the actual institutional design is such that the principles of an entrepreneur's problem-solving mindset are inherent in the learning program design. Like this is exactly what the opposite of what I was facing earlier. Now I can step back on my direct instruction and they're still getting the same lessons that I was hoping they would have available to them all along. That's great. I'm a homeschooling mom as well. And um, one of the things we found when we switched to homeschooling was my kids sometimes felt like they were just checking off the boxes when they were in school. And, you know, once we started homeschooling, they had a lot less of that. There's still some boxes you have to check, but not quite as many. Um, and then Angela, your story is a bit different because you actually started your own full-scale school. So could you share a bit about, you know, what led you to leave the public school and you know, were your motivations similar? Were they, you know, you know, some the same, some different? How, how does that play out with what you've heard so far? Um, yeah, so I don't think it was so much of a burnout as it was a frustration. Um, kind of like um, the our previous speaker said, um, you're just kind of confined to, um, or not confined, I'd say you're kind of limited in what you can do. Um, what I saw when looking at children, because, you know, I was essentially on the admin team, so you're dealing with behavior and all the other jobs that you have to do in public school. Um, but I would pull groups and do things, and I would see students that were struggling. And it wasn't that they didn't know the information, they just couldn't communicate how they knew it the way that they were being asked, if that makes sense. And so that was very frustrating to me because kids were being labeled, kids were not getting opportunities just because they couldn't demonstrate what they could learn the way they were being asked. But if given another opportunity or another way to demonstrate their knowledge, they could absolutely do it. Um, and I, I, you know, it's nothing about, I, it's nothing that I think is a, a bad thing against public school. You know, I'm not against public school or anything. I grew up in a public school system myself. All, all of my grade school was in public, but the public school is just not designed to teach individual students. It is designed to teach massive amount of students. So they have to normalize a lot of things, but for many of our kids, they just are not normal. And it's not in a bad way, but we're just individuals and we don't have the, they don't always have the opportunity or the creative ability to be them, their unique self. And uh, so it was that frustration of seeing kids that were falling through the cracks, seeing kids that could do better than what they were doing, but they were limited to a paper and pencil test. But if you had given them an opportunity to show you that learning another way, they actually got it. It was almost like a, I got you, you know, testing became an, I got you. Uh, you didn't know the information, but what was the goal? You know, the goal for me is that you learn the material. I don't care how you show me, just show me that you learned it. Um, and so it was more of just really being frustrated. Um, so I guess in a sense it was burnout, but it was burnout because I was frustrated with how the system didn't work for a lot of kids. And it also didn't work for teachers. Um, it wasn't really working for me because I felt like a lot of my ability to be creative or give kids options to, to demonstrate learning to me um, was not um, appreciated, if that's if, if I can say that. Um, it's just not what they wanted. They wanted everything to kind of be a little robotic and everybody to be the same place at the same time and everywhere. But that's just not realistic. Um, and I just think that a lot of times that policies and things that are in place, it's not that people are necessarily intentionally trying to do um, wrong or not make the best environment or give kids the best effort. It's just the premise behind it, because um, we all know that everybody learns different and everybody's an individual, and we celebrate that so much in our country, but yet in our school systems, we teach kids or we treat kids like they're all the same. Um, and so that was what really sparked um, me wanting to make an impact in education. I had tutored for many years, had a tutoring business, and that was great, but I just felt like I wanted to reach out to more children and more families. So um, that's where Deeper Root Academy was birthed. And uh, we right now currently serve children that are um, infants all the way through eighth grade. Um, and we were just really trying to understand how smart you are um, or how you're smart rather than how smart you are. 
you know, because a lot of times people say, oh, yes, my kids are smart. Yeah, that's great. They're all smart, though. It's how you're smart. You know, are you music smart, body smart, picture smart, word smart? Because I really believe that if you understand how someone is smart or what their intelligence are, you can teach them the way they learn. Then you'll get the real person and their real understanding. And it's not just a one way because we're not all just one way. So that's really my story and how we started Deep Root Academy. Um, and I didn't come from business background and all of that. So this has been an extreme learning curve, but definitely something I would not be doing any differently. And there's nothing else or nowhere else I'd rather be than doing this and giving this opportunity to families and children. And what year did you start Deeper Root? We started in 2014. Okay, so you were pretty established by the time the COVID you know, came along and everything. Yes, but the COVID hurt everybody. <laughs> yes. And it, it did a number on us too. I mean, even as a small school, um, we did have to go virtual for some parts of it. Um, but the truth of the matter was that kids were experiencing all kinds of gaps because we were now um, putting the controls into an uncontrolled environment where it's a lot more controlled when, we're, when they're with us, but now we had to release that. And so there's a lot of catch up. I mean, we hear it all the time in the news, how far kids have lost and learning loss and things like that. But I mean, it's not that they can't make those gains, they can, we just have to reestablish the right environment so we can get the learning gains for the kids. Right. So I've got a question from Facebook that I, I think Tom is probably the, best one to shoot this to. How likely is it we'll be able to create neighborhood co-ops for parents or homeschool teachers to each add in their specialties without getting credentialed? And it seems like you've had some experience with the homeschool community, so. Yeah, I think actually this is kind of the premise behind um, both the, the Prenda model and the Kaipod model to an extent, is that people are doing this and they've been doing this not just post-COVID, they've been doing this for decades. Um, and, and if we look at the history of education, it's really something that has been the education norm throughout most of recorded human history. The idea of like sending kids away into these little 30, 30 student packets into a public school, like that's a relatively new model. So really we're not reinventing something new. We're getting back to something that has been the learning norm for a very long time. Now, in Arizona, where I'm located, we have a very unique opportunity with the recent expansion of our empowerment scholarship uh, program out here that many, many, many new families are able to jump in and participate in programs like this um, because some of the, the funding that it takes to run programs like this is now accessible to these families themselves as opposed to only getting access to this kind of funding if they're going to their assigned district school, right? So what's the likelihood that it's gonna happen? It's growing every single day, it's very high. Um, these are going to be coming to a community near you. And in fact, I would say it probably already is happening in a community near you. If you go looking for it, you're gonna find it, um, you know, Prenda got started here in Arizona uh, back about 2018, probably a first micro school, actually 2017. I'd have to double check on that. So we're not a response to this COVID pandemic learning pods environment. This is not a new thing. Um, we're now in six states, if I can remember off the top of my head. Um, but the reality is there are programs like this, whether they're big multi uh, multi-state programs, or it's just, you know, we got this uh, family who's been homeschooling their kids for a long time, and they've connected with other homeschoolers, and the, the, they're building these networks. And because they're very informal, people don't recognize them, but they exist, and they are awesome once you discover them. They are amazing. There's so much going on educationally uh, within your own community. If you just start looking a lot of social media platforms have been very helpful in helping to connect some of these communities where, you know, they're no longer just through email chains and, and list serve uh, um, services, but uh, being able to reach out there and look and see what opportunities already exist uh, 
I'm really excited as people start to discover what is already existing, what new stuff is going to come about because of that, as they start to see the potential that is actually there, that it's, it's just, it's massive. There's so much opportunity to do things like this. Um, so yes, it's coming, but it's already there. Yes, as, as we, I've been a homeschooler for about nine years, and I totally agree with what you said. Um, every state's rules are a lot different. So if you are considering it in your own area, just check with your state and see what the laws are there. And, you know, different states have different funding mechanisms too, like Florida and Arizona both have pretty diverse and vibrant school choice options. So the situation is a little bit different for Kim in Boston, where they really don't have much of that. So Kim, maybe talk to us a little bit about how, you know, for what you've seen since you got into this, the challenges of not having any options like that in your area. Yeah, well, first, I, I definitely want to echo what, what Tom said about these pods and these communities already existing. And uh, this is this is one thing that KaiPod is really excited about is being able to offer um, these pods, one with an, with an educator who can potentially communicate with other educators if students are in online schools, um, or if homeschool families already you know, have a curriculum that they're using, if they've already created something, um, this is a way for an educator to be there you know, however many days a week you want with your students that the families can also do what they need to do. Um, and it, this can be, you know, one more community that they can interact with and develop those social emotional skills. Um, but it is, Colleen, like you said, a challenge uh, in, in Massachusetts um, where, and I think the crux of this too, like we mentioned in the beginning, is that a lot of people just don't know uh, in Massachusetts that this is an option and exists. Um, so the way that KaiPod works is you can be enrolled in any curriculum that you like. You can some students are enrolled in the online public school from Massachusetts called Teca. Some students are enrolled in national programs. Some students are homeschooled, and so they're using a combination of maybe Khan Academy and No Ridding and Outschool classes. And so it can be really your education can be whatever you want it to be. And my job as a learning coach is to help you kind of organize that and hone those executive functioning skills so that you students can find those creative solutions and um, be independent learners and be creative problem solvers and have that social emotional learning and activities that they can really do hands-on learning with you know if they're in online school um, they can do those science experiments and things like that um, but we have just opened, kind of like Tom was saying again, we've opened in a couple other states. We've opened in Arizona, like Tom is in. We've opened in New Hampshire and in Georgia. And it is so interesting to me to see the differences that each of these states have in terms of how many students are even just hearing that these opportunities, opportunities exist. So in some of these states, we've been able to partner with the state and uh, been able to offer um, these services kind of as, as part of, okay, if you're enrolled in this state program, you know, KaiPod is just an option for you. Um, and in Massachusetts, it's really us getting word of mouth out through these homeschool communities um, and these online communities. We'd mentioned social networking platforms um, so that people really know that this is a viable option and you can and will get an incredible education and a more individualized education potentially um, if you are part of these smaller pods like you would be in a KaiPod, um, like you would be in uh, a Prenda, like you would be in, in these learning pods that are now popping up and becoming so popular. Um, so I, you know, I've, like I mentioned, I've taught in New York, I've taught in Virginia, and the idea of alternative forms of education is just the the mindset of people um, even just knowing that these exist is is so varied and so different across different states but I do think um, that it's becoming more widespread I do think that it's becoming more in people's uh, realm of knowledge <laughs> and so that uh, people know that this is this is a real thing it's here to stay and I really think it's only gonna gonna grow from here. So you're talking about ways to let people know, but um, one thing that I think is really interesting hearing you say all of that is when, when we met, you talked about how you never heard of any of these other options when you were in your educator training. And do you think that's common? And what, if anything, can we do to address that problem? 
So the teachers, so more teachers yeah. do know that there's this whole universe of options out there. Yes, definitely. I feel like, you know, I, I graduated college in 2016, so I feel like it's not, not too long ago. Um, but I feel like even so much has just changed with the pandemic and people looking for other options besides their, their, you know, brick and mortar school or their, their traditional public school. And I feel like before, um, you know, we still have a long way to go of people knowing that there are options, but I feel like the options that I was presented with were, you can be a classroom teacher and that classroom teacher can be, you can work in a public school, um, some type of charter school or a private school, or you can be a tutor or you can go the administrative route and get into, you know, you can try to make policy change if that's something you're passionate about. And those seem to really be the only types of opportunities that were presented to me. Um, and then of course there was, you could be, you know, did you want to do elementary or secondary or um, post-secondary education? But that's really it. Um, and so I am hearing a little bit more, but as I still talk to people, you know, it's a conversation and I think the pandemic if we can say any sort of silver lining that is come, that has come out of that, um, it's that people at least are a little more familiar with uh, an online school option or familiar with looking at other choices and knowing that there could be other choices um, besides just, okay, I'm living in this district, so I'm gonna send my students to this school or I am going to look into the private schools that are available. Um, and same thing for teachers, I think they at least know there's some realm of knowledge about uh, there are these other options, but I think either including these options in teaching courses, you know, that none of these options were mentioned in even my master's degree um, in education that I did very recently. Um, none of these options were talked about with public school teachers, you know, even with all the burnout I was seeing with my colleagues in public schools, it was, well, if you're not a teacher, you're going to start a different career. You know, this was, it was not, okay, I'll transition to a different career in education. It was maybe I'll go into admin because then I won't maybe be exhausted at the end of the day, which also is not true. Um, but, you know, there, it, there was not a lot of knowledge about what I, what else I can do in education. Um, and I think that these micro schools or these other schools, there's such a great tie that we have with the communities. And so as I wonder if that's another way to potentially get the word out as well through community organizations, um, through nonprofits that we work with or through community centers or through, you know, we, we do some things with the, YM, the local YMCAs um, with these, these community groups that maybe are existing on social media for, for the start of things, um, but are really, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said for the community telling, <laughs> saying what it needs and then filling that need based on what those needs are. Um, so that might be one way for us to do it, but I think that it really needs to, these really need to be included as true options for people that want to go into education um, and knowing, having those presented as different forms of education instead of just your, your public, private, charter, or administrative route or secondary education, because that's all that was presented to me. And that kind of, Tom, you had mentioned an interesting story that you had about how you ended up with Prenda. Yeah, actually, um, this is very much how I discovered my current employer right now. Uh, I was kind of in the same boat that uh, that Kim was in, in that uh, as I went through my, my education program, it was a, a master's in education slash certification program. One of these things that is designed by one of the state universities to address this teacher shortage that supposedly exists, right? Um, it, as a way to get people to transition quickly from another career into education. And as I went through this program, I was really surprised at how it was like a, such a singular track that like your only option was to go into the public education system. And I'm like, I know there's other options out there. I've participated in other education models. I've, you know, they exist. I, there was a, uh, a curriculum design class that I took where they did address, you know, different kind of pedagogical approaches, um, talked about different learning models, uh, but it was almost with a, a derogatory uh, bend to it in that, 
all of these teachers were supposed to be on track to go teach in the public school system. That was the design of this program. That's what that was its intention. So then as I'd been teaching for a number of years and and honestly really enjoying the work that I did, I worked with great people. I had great colleagues. <clears throat> um, people who I, I want to give them a shout out for being incredibly professional, despite having very different political views that I might have, um, were, were very professional in the classroom, people who I could highly respect as educators. And yet when something would happen and where they no longer felt at, at home in the public school system, same thing they would leave and they would go off and sell insurance or real estate or you know any of these other professions um, that you could do where hey I, i'm really good at talking with people i'm i'm very good at communicating complex ideas effectively okay uh, but the reality is that there's other opportunities outside of the traditional brick and mortar classroom and so I started a blog. I haven't maintained it for years, but this is how I discovered my current employers. I wanted to show my fellow educators that there were other options available, that they could stay in the world of education. And so I was actively researching and finding these different approaches to, to school, different approaches to learning, whether it was things like homeschool co-ops or private schools or starting your own school. I discovered some amazing programs that are out there um, and, and that have, that are not new, like these have existed for a long time or, you know, some of them are new and there's more coming on board all the time, but I just wanted to share with my colleagues who were in education, but getting burnout, like guys, there's options available. You don't have to leave a profession that you love, where you get to work with kids, where you get to see that light behind their eyes as they finally catch the understanding. Oh, like nothing beats that feeling. You don't have to give that up. Um, because that was the mentality is if I wasn't in a classroom, I'm not a teacher. Uh, and so I, I was, as I'm researching some of these options, I discovered Prenda and actually that was before Prenda was even micro schools. Um, Prenda has morphed a little bit. It started as an after school coding club that simply took advantage of a public resource space, like a public library. Um, and, but I discovered it that way. And then it came back on my radar, uh, about three years later after I'd already made the leap out of public education, I'd worked on a few education nonprofits uh, and a, a couple of other uh, post-secondary education startups and just really trying to see what else can be done out there. Uh, and then that's when Prenda shifted into the micro school model, which now I, I love. I was on track to start my own school anyway. And this simply facilitated that process for me and made it a lot easier. So. Teachers, there are options out there. Just because no one's told you that they exist does not mean they, they, they're not existing. Well, you, you gave me a good segue. I've got a question from the audience for Dr. Kennedy. I have been interested in starting a school for a number of years, but have had trouble knowing where to start. Could Dr. Kennedy provide some insights into how to begin? In addition, I'm very curious how these programs are funded. Well, I do live in uh, Florida and in the great state of Florida, we do have a, a large support for um, funding for private schools. So um, for me, um, that's kind of where it started. Um, you, you really want to start with the Department of Education. You have to um, have actually established your school and register it with the Department of Education. And then there's a whole list of things that I don't nearly have enough time to share with you today. Um, but I'm sure that um, our contact information or things may be available after this uh, podcast. Because there is so much. I was in another um, panel um, a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about how there is just not a really clear roadmap for people who want to venture in this way. And uh, my story was pretty tough in the beginning. Um, you know, learning how to, the education part was pretty simple. I, I kind of knew what, what, what grades I wanted to teach. I had taught in all types of different grade levels. So I kind of knew what school needed to look like, but getting a building, being established, um, dealing with all of the programs as far as like the school lunch program and making sure that you have curriculum and all these things, that can be quite tedious, and especially if you're just on your own. I wouldn't recommend it, but one of the things you want to do is make sure that you look work with your local um, 
entities as far as understanding how do you get your licensing um, for your school because there's a lot of um, things you have to do for school age um, students and especially if you have even younger kids. Um, but but you really kind of want to start with the Department of Education. And if you go through your Department of Education, it usually has a list of things that are required to register a school. Um, and so that's where I started. Um, but really, um, when I started Hebrew Root Academy, I was in my home. And I, you know, a number of people had heard me talk about, you know, like, I really want to one day start this school and it's going to be amazing. And so when they found out that I was actually taking students, this was like in March of 2014. So I was towards the end of the school year and I just really didn't think I was going to have any students. But I actually had people who were moving their kids out of the public school system and bringing them to my house. It was crazy. Um, and that grew quite quickly. And then uh, we got a building. Um, that's a whole nother um, story of the building. I mean, we started out with me taking all of my um, pension that was remaining and um, using that as our, you know, seed money, so to speak. So I hired a, a project manager to get us a building, you know, follow all of that process because I wasn't familiar with how to do that. Uh, but unfortunately, that person wasn't um, who they who they said they were. And we lost all of that money um, uh, because we paid him to get that process going and uh, settled in. Um, he basically left with that money. So of course, all our seed money was gone, um, took out lots of loans. And I think the only saving grace for us was um, step up for students. Um, the fact that the money followed those children and I could actually enroll children and enroll families that needed another option and the parents didn't have to stress on being able to afford this private school education is the only thing that's really saved us and in fact really sustained us um, to be able to keep offering these these programs. Um, I, I would say too that we are still affiliated with um, the public schools in our county so that we can uh, participate with like Title I um, services and resources and things like that. So it gives other opportunities for our students. So the connections is one, maintaining really good connections and really just getting out there and talking to individuals who um, have actually gone through this, this road. I, I try to help anybody who asks me, I will sit down with you. I will kind of talk to you about a roadmap and let's get a plan in place because it is a lot um, to start, but you can absolutely do it. Where there is a will, there is a way. And they love to hear me say this all the time, but what else are you gonna do? These kids need help. These families need help. And if nobody does it, then what's going to happen? These are the people who are going to be the leaders that have to take care of us. And I mean, I want a hand in helping somebody know how to help take care of me, if you know what I'm saying. So, um, I mean, start with your um, Department of Education and just really knowing the process and the steps to register a school. And then from there, um, depending on what you, where you're going to um, have your school, if you're going to start in a building or a facility or you're going to rent from a church or wherever you're going to be, then you have to kind of look at those municipalities and, you know, health departments and things like that to tell you what are your next steps. That's great advice. And I know if you're trying to figure out if your state does have any of these school choice programs, you can go to edchoice.org and they have a fantastic database that can really walk you through it and give you a good starting point. Because like Angela said, if the funding is following the students in your state, it's it's a it helps you climb that hill. It's not gonna be an easy hill to climb, but it definitely helps. And and that way you are reaching all the kids that need it, not just limited to the ones whose parents can afford it. So it really is helpful. Um, we are getting a lot of questions. I can tell already I'm not going to get to all of them. Um, I do apologize if I'm right about that, but um, so maybe we'll shorten the answers on a couple of these. Can someone address how to manage the opposition that the education unions pose to these options? It's very real and powerful in many states like mine, Washington, particularly those that have laws that prevent the establishment of things like micro schools or even charter schools. So I'm just going to toss this out there. Does anyone want to take this one? Uh, I, I'll try to address it. And I think that uh, with the, the current model that, um, that Prenda uses right now is we partner with existing education organizations. 
and that will vary from state to state uh, depending on on what's available what's out there and, and what laws exist um, our goal is not to try to pull kids out of the public school system right in fact in in at least one of our states where prenda operates our partner there is a public school or, or rather a, a public district school all of our partners are public schools just district or charter right um, and so we we really try and work hard to let people know that like we're not trying to undermine what you're doing we value what you're doing but we also recognize the the shortcomings or those struggles or the the constraints that are placed on you the educators by people who are in the political realm and outside the world of education but they're the ones that are making the decisions and uh, as about how you can or can't do your job right and all we're trying to offer is an a different or a, an alternative approach to how do we design these institutions that makes it more beneficial for the students and honestly, it makes it more beneficial for the educators as well. I don't know in a specific number, uh, I'd have to look at the data, but part of what my role is at Prenda is I help with the onboarding of people who want to get a new micro school started. And a good portion of them are people who are coming from uh, the public education system. These are people who have years of experience as classroom educators. The teachers are not the ones who see us as an enemy. The teachers see kids who want to learn. They see opportunities to help kids learn. And they see us as someone who's trying to create more opportunities for kids to learn. And honestly, we see those professional educators in very much the same way. We've worked with people in all kinds of learning environments. If you want to create a place for kids to be able to learn and feel recognized and feel safe, let's partner with you. We want to work together. So I think it, yeah, I'm pulling that I've seen going. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, if I could, I, I want to echo what, what Tom is saying about working with the schools and, and working with a lot of the teachers that are in those schools. And so, you know, at KaiPod, my role is learning to, coaches to support the students in whatever curriculum they choose. And a lot of those curriculums, as I mentioned, are public school curriculum. So the public school option, uh, the online public school option in Massachusetts. And so I am hooked into their online page. I'm hooked into their curriculum so I can see what their teacher is assigning them. I can see what their curriculum looks like. I can see their assignments. And that way the teacher and I can kind of tag team this together so that it doesn't all have to be on the teacher's shoulders. The teacher can say, hey, I know that you are in person with a student three days a week. Um, they are, they need more help on this. Do you have other supports that you would recommend or can you do this in person with them? Um, and so it really is a partnership and it really is, I feel, um, a great way to hopefully ease a little bit off of those teachers as well so that they can still do their job and hopefully do their job to a much fuller capacity. So, and also like what Tom said, um, at KaiPod, we're not trying to you know, convince people that school is, that their school is working for, that KaiPod is the option they should change to. We're trying to give a solution to those people who maybe didn't know that this solution existed, um, who it's not working for, to say, hey, this is, this is a possibility for you and this is a way that we could maybe support you in what you're doing um, so that it works better for you and works better for everybody. So, you know, just echoing that, trying to make it more of a partnership, really trying to make it um, work for whatever they're trying to do and, and work together with those people. Well, and it, I, it is like politically, a lot of times teachers unions are the obstacle to more school choice programs, but polling of actual teachers shows a pretty high 70 plus percent support for these programs. So I, I think another thing is for individual teachers just to express to their union leadership that they don't want to fight these battles. They, you know, they want to live cooperatively with all these options that are flourishing because this isn't going away. You know, people have gotten a taste for options. They're not going to just suddenly say, oh, never mind. So I think that if the union leadership could, you know, make peace with that and work cooperatively, just like you guys are talking about working cooperatively with them, then you know, I think that could help a lot with those with those issues. So 
Another question that we have is, Okay, there's a couple that are talking about compensation for teachers. So if you lost job security, if you took a pay cut, benefit, you know, healthcare, things like that. So I don't know um, if anybody wants to get into that. Dr. Kennedy, of course, you're dealing with this from the administrative side of things as well as your own. And you did already share how your pension got <laughs> annihilated by a shady contractor. Um, so. Yes. So um one of the things that um, is difficult for us, even though the funding does um, follow students and it does allow for you to have some um, resources, uh, financial resources to support your operations. Um, one thing that it doesn't do is um, cover much of the extra. Like you literally are using most of that to um, fund what you need for programs and things like that for those students to be there. Um, so we cannot really, <clears throat> at this point, we can't um, compete with like the salaries in the public school system. Um, so then that creates a little difficulty when we're trying to look for teachers uh, because of course they see the much higher pay when they go to the public school, but then they're just not happy. Um, so <clears throat> there's other things that we do offer. Like, of course, we We've been fortunate um, to offer um, medical insurance. We offer vision and dental insurance. We offer 401k options. Um, so that those are things that um, we do. Not all schools offer that, especially in private schools, but we do. Um, we try to be as competitive as we can with um, compensation, but we are in no way in competition with um you know, the county and what they can pay. Um, there is some despair, some, some discrepancy in between um, what you would traditionally receive as payment in a, a public school um, versus a private school. However, the other things that I can offer, I think are some things that money can't buy. Um, being able to be in an environment where you can be creative in an environment where you um, are not stressed in an environment where you feel that you can grow um, in an environment where you feel like you can become an entrepreneur yourself. Um, those are things that are not necessarily the, you know, the bread and butter of what is happening for teachers in the public school. Um, so there's, there's some wins, but um, if it's just about money, we, we don't compare in that way, but there are other things that are not about money that is really about your life and your health that we can compete with. Colleen, can I piggyback on that answer? Because I, I think that really uh, very few people who get into education, get into education for the money, right? Like it's not the most right. lucrative career out there. Just gonna, just gonna be real right. honest about that, okay? Uh, however, when they do come into education and they do it because they wanna be creative and they want to be able to work with these kids and they wanna be able to see these things and then the system ties their hands so that they're not able to do that, like, man, it, it makes such a huge difference. Um, for, for me, one of the, and this is a, a resource I used often in class. There's actually a, a TED talk by Daniel Pink um, where he talks about what motivates us, right? And, and he explains this idea that up to a point, money can motivate people, but actually people who tend to work in more professional uh, careers, m the increased money actually reduces their productivity and their effectiveness. That some of the things that actually make people most, uh, like feel most compensated for the work that they're doing is a sense of autonomy being able to be creative and design their own programs and do their own things. And then the second one is to feel like their work matters, that they're contributing to something larger than, uh, than just, Hey, I produced so many widgets today. Right now for all the disagreements that I might have with Daniel Pink, like he is right on the money right there. And I've seen that every single day, the way that the Prenda learning model is structured, most of our micro schools will meet in person for about 20 hours a week. Like this is a part-time role for the most part, not exclusively, but for the most part. And so it's, it's a part-time income, right? If someone is coming from a teacher's experience, teacher's background, um, and they go, okay, well, I could run one micro school and that's 20 hours a week. I could run two micro schools. That's 20 hours a week. 
that's still less time than I was working as a regular classroom teacher. I'm contracted this many hours, but I'm doing grading on the nights and weekends. I'm coming in early to do lesson planning. I'm doing all this additional work that I'm not compensated for. We're not asking you to do work that you're not compensated for. If you're going to be working, you're going to be compensated for that work that you're doing. Um, and actually someone who has that education experience, who chooses to run two micro schools with Prenda uh, will earn more money working with 20 students roughly uh, than a new teacher would working with 150 students in, in a high school environment, right? So it's not that the pay is necessarily better or worse or anything like that. It's you are treated as a professional and that matters to people in this profession. Yeah, I'll say too, um, I, I definitely am of the mindset that people don't get into teaching for the money, um, but I'll be very honest, let's not pretend that money doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> I need to have enough money to have, have a livelihood. Um, so in Massachusetts, for example, um, you can make a very different salary teaching in a city versus in a suburb versus in a rural county. And the salaries range anywhere, you know, from <laughs> to just give ballpark numbers in a rural county, you be, you may be making thirty dollars to $35,000 as a full-time teacher um, with a bachelor's degree working towards your master's. In Boston, as a big city, you may be making eighty dollars to $85,000 a year as a teacher with a bachelor's degree working towards a master's, obviously depending on your experience, depending on um, your your level of education, depending on which schools you're working in. Um, but I will say, you know, I was coming from, I was looking at job offers from traditional schools and from Kaipod, and the pay was, uh, was matched. It was, I'm making the same amount of money, I'm working much fewer hours. And I will say for a lot of these smaller companies, for companies like Kaipod, I'm imagining companies like Prenda or independent schools, at least at Kaipod, I have more opportunities to make money too. So I have more opportunities since I know my, I, I know the CEO and founder, he, he's in the classroom with me a lot of the days. Um, Amar, who is wonderful, um, I can say, hey, Amar, um, is there anything else that I can do because I'm not grading papers after school? Can I take on additional tasks and be compensated for them? And that's a conversation that I can have with my supervisor, with the CEO of my company that I could never have had as any sort of conversation with the public school that I was working at. So not only would I say, at least in my position, that my pay is comparable, I would say there are other opportunities, not just for development in terms of my professional development, in terms of career, in terms of learning new things that I want to learn. But there's there are opportunities for me to supplement that income if that's something I'm interested in, because being part of a startup, there are always more things that you can volunteer to do. There are always more growing experiences. And so I've been I feel very, very fortunate that I've been able to find this opportunity and been able to kind of maintain that with with health insurance, with dental insurance, with all of these things um, that you would need and to be able to have those closer relationships, to have those conversations that you wouldn't be able to have in a public school. Okay, that's great feedback. Can I everybody. say something else? Um, can I say one more thing? Because um, uh, compensation, that's a lot of people have something to say about that. But um, like uh, both of my counterparts have said, uh, money does matter. But when you are, when you feel um, respected, when you feel that um, what you're doing matters, when you feel appreciated by what you do, when when the parents care, when the kids care, there, there's no other greater pay than that. Um, and I am a firm believer that if you are doing what you were created to do, if you are being your authentic, authentic self and living your truth, then you're not really working. I mean, I'm, I work all the time, but I wouldn't be doing anything else because I love what I'm doing. And um, that's what I really try to help our kids understand, like, what are you naturally gifted to do? And let's do that. Let's work towards that. Let's train you for that. So when you grow up and you're working, you're not really working. You're just living your life and you're enjoying it and getting paid for it. So once again, you guys give me great segues. Uh, I've had several questions asking how education entrepreneurs or parents who want more educational freedom and options for their kids, how can they connect directly with teachers to encourage them to consider these other options that 
you know, from the sounds of it, there's a lot of benefits to them. So any thoughts on how to get those connections made? Colleen, I can chime in on this. Um, one thing is to take a, a look at entrepreneurial educators who are already out there. I wanted to kind of tag this onto the last question, um, but you know, Kim, Angela, and I all work for like schools or school programs, but there's also ways for educators to be very independent and take 100% control over the work they do. There's out platforms like OutSchool where you can offer online uh, courses of your own design. Oh my goodness, like I did OutSchool classes for a number of years. I loved it. Um, had I poured more effort and energy into it, like this is one of those areas where the, the earnings potential is literally unlimited for you. Um, if you are someone who can demand uh, high fees, if that's something that you want to do, if you want to give scholarships for people who can't afford it, you have that option, right? Uh, but there's ways out there where there, there are people out there who are teaching in their community uh, already. OutSchool out is one where you can go and you can find people who are doing this. Uh, and sometimes they are doing this as their primary income. Sometimes they're doing it as supplemental income for homeschool co-op courses that they offer for, you know, I work in a traditional classroom and I'm doing this as well, but they have that entrepreneurial bend to them. So reach out to those people and say, hey, I've got an opportunity here for you. There's this other program that I'm aware of, or I have gathered this group of parents together and we wanna hire you to do this course. Reach out to those people because they will jump at the opportunity. So good tips. Does anyone else have any thoughts on ways to connect with teachers and let them know that you're looking for something else and are willing to pay them to provide that something else? Well, I'll say, I mean, Facebook is a good place. Outschool, like Tom mentioned, even care.com. I've, you know, I've seen listings for tutors and most of those are teachers that are also tutoring on the side. Um, you can ask your friends and family if there are homeschool groups around you. A lot of the times they can have uh, resources. And if you are in a state that has the school choice programs, then maybe you talk to teachers that you know and you can start. Um, you know, Angela talked about how difficult starting a full scale private school is. I know a lot of people that started with micro schools, not you know the Prenda kind, like a little bit different than that, but maybe an acting academy or one where they are getting together. They've got their own curriculum that they're using. And um, it's generally in a lot of states, they register as homeschoolers, but then get together in, you know, for the in-person aspect. So they consider themselves a school, but regulation wise, they're a homeschool. And so then there's just a lot fewer hoops to jump through typically. So those are ways that you can do it. And, you know, probably just word of mouth is your best bet and finding out what the options are in your state for what funding is available. And, um, Another place to I'll recommend you follow is Carrie McDonald, who is an adjunct scholar with me here at Cato, but she has a series called The Liberated Podcast, which she talks in depth with a lot of educators who have started their own opportunities and it's very inspiring. So I'll recommend that one to you. Um, does anyone else have anything they want to weigh in on that? Okay, then I'll move on to another question. And this one is from a, a parent who is kind of in the same area of life that I am right now. I sent my daughter off to college and I'm considering changing, not that I'm changing my career, but I'm considering changing my career from finance and accounting to education. I hope to find an independent learning community that prioritizes fresh air, exercise, silliness, and joyful curiosity. Can you recommend specific organizations? So I'm going to take the, <laughs> the opportunity to go first here because I actually have a blog series called the Friday feature at the Cato blog, cato.org. And uh, I, I've talked to two different garden school or forest school leaders and written about them. One is called Barefoot University. And that is one you might want to look into because they have, um, it's a model that you can adopt. So they, they help you start forest schools in your community. The other one was one in Georgia that is a, you know, a specific location there, but um, Barefoot University is one that you can branch off with. So that's one to look into. And I don't know if any of the rest of you have had any experience with those types of uh, oh, kind of outside the box, outside the classroom, even learning opportunities. 
Yeah, I would... one you mentioned already is like, oh, sorry, go ahead, Kim. No, no, well, I was just gonna say there's a couple nonprofits that I know of, which is not necessarily a uh, school itself, but looking into your local environmental nonprofits is really great because a lot of times you can volunteer with them or work with them and teach classes. So it may not be classes that are the whole day, but you could do outdoor, you could lead outdoor excursions with students. So in Virginia, there was one called Wild Virginia. In Boston, there's one called Elevate Youth. And so it's just going kind of on these excursions with students and getting them out into nature and having um, a really immersive educa education experience. So sorry, didn't mean to cut you off, Tom. No problem at all. Um, yeah, I, I, Colleen already mentioned Acton Academies, which is another one who will help you start a school. Not so much the outdoor necessarily, but there's definitely room for that in there. Um, the Agile Learning Centers, ALC, is another great program that will help you get started with one in your own community. Um, one thing, and I, I probably should have showed you this beforehand, but it was a huge help for me while going through this process is the Teacher Liberation Handbook. It's by Joel Hammond, and it's essentially step by step. What are you trying to do? If you're trying to start your own school, how are you going to do it? What do you need? This is step by step process of how to do it. Uh, and Joel's gone through and interviewed people who have done this all across the country and actually all across the world. Uh, how do you get out there and start your own learning environment? Um, sometimes it is structured as a school. Sometimes, like you mentioned, Colleen, they're registered as homeschoolers. It gives them a lot more flexibility and freedom to maintain what they want to do. But if a bunch of homeschoolers happen to all go to the park at the same time, does that magically make it a school? No, of course not, right? So you maintain a lot of this flexibility and, and are able to do things your own way. There are tons of resources out there if you're willing to do a little bit of, of homework and dig. Um, society really doesn't make it easy. It, it's starting to get easier only through the sheer will and determination of those who have been doing it for the last several decades. Oh, well, and I would we be remiss. Actually, Sorry. I got <laughs> If I didn't put a plug in for um, homeschool builders, or I'm sorry, micro school builders, I don't know. I think Mara Meinberger. Mara, similar yep. thing. I've talked to similar, her. Absolutely. Like, yeah, exactly. Very good. And then someone in the uh, Q&A part said Tinker Garden, which is not what I'm familiar with. I'm definitely going to look into that. So we, we've run past five a little bit here, but uh, it's been a great conversation and maybe we could just do like a one minute round robin if any, if we just wanna go around, starting with Kim, if you have any like last thoughts you'd like to share with people, um, I'm sure that we can share email addresses. If you, know, if you want to let me know and, and we'll put that on the website um, or you can say it now, it's up to you. But um, if there's ways to contact you, you can contact me through the cato.org website, but you know, just give you a quick little message that you'd like to send off with. Yeah, absolutely. Please feel free to, to reach out if you have any questions after. I'm, I'm sure they'll share contact info, but I'm Kim at KaiPodLearning.com. Um, but I, I feel like a lot of people that I know who were educators or are educators feel uh, really, as everybody's expressed, really frustrated and disappointed with how their uh, current job is going in the state of education in general. Um, and just knowing that there are options, I'm happy to help you find them. Um, I know a lot of people who are doing alternative things are happy to help you try to find them. Um, so that that love and passion of education is not lost. And as Tom was saying, you still get that spark. You see, still see the spark in students' eyes. Um, as Angela was saying, you're do something, doing something you're passionate about. You're not losing that passion. And uh, you, you really don't feel like you're working uh, if this is what you're feeling called to do. Um, there are options out there. And don't feel like those are the only things you're limited to or what you're being presented with and learning about. It might take a little more digging, but, but it'll be worth it. Angela, any last final thoughts here? Sure. Um, do what you love. <laughs> I mean, our, our kids and our families are worth it. Um, there, there's so many opportunities and things you can do for children. I mean, we have kids that are uh, normal functioning kids. We have kids that are on the spectrum. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Why? Because we're looking at how they're smart as opposed to how smart they are. It works for some, I'm not saying that a school like mine works for everybody, but there are so many different opportunities that parents just need to do the research and find what works for your kids. That's what I love about school choice. 
you have the power, the parents have the power, find what works for your kids because ultimately they're the ones that need you to give them that choice and that opportunity and now the power is in your hands to do it and the finances too. So take advantage of every opportunity you have to give your children an opportunity for success and to put them on the track for um, being you know, their unique self and giving back the creative gift that God already gave them to give back to this world. Thank you much. And Tom? Yeah, um, we are still in the very early stages of a massive cultural shift in education. There is so much opportunity. There's so many new things coming on board and we get stuck in these mindsets that just because this is the way it's been done in the past, that it has to be done this way in the future. And it's, that's not true right? Just because we've done things that don't work for a long time doesn't mean that we have to keep doing those things, right? This is a gross sunk cost fallacy. Uh, but there's so much opportunity. So if you are someone who is in education and you are feeling those constraints um, preventing you from doing what you know is best for these kids, uh, but there's nothing like what you have in mind out there, go and build it go and make something. And if you're starting with a handful of kids, start with that handful of kids because, um, man, this is such a goofy thing. I quote it all the time. You may be able to count the number of seeds in an apple, but you can never count the number of apples in a seed. You have no way to know what the long-term impact of your actions are going to be. And those four or five, 15 kids that you start with are going to change the world. Well, I, I hate to even say anything after that. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. I'm very sorry we didn't get to all the questions. I thought it was a fantastic conversation. The recording will be available on the Cato website within, I think, the next day. So if you missed any or you want to replay any, uh, my contact information is there, and so are the panelists. If you want to reach out, they've all expressed willingness to answer questions. And, and please check out my Friday feature blog because I profile innovative ed educators like this all the time and you know, would love to connect with you. So thank you very much and I hope you've enjoyed it.